Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. You just need to click on the link and become an Acast supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ideas in writing. Hello, I'm Philip Holden, and this is Ideas in Writing, the podcast where we use uh, words to discuss, well, uh, words. Words that may be written, spoken, sung, heard, tweeted, misunderstood, thrown away, cancelled, and even delivered to your door on slices of dead tree. I'm really excited uh, this time round that in this episode, I got to talk to uh, a bit of a hero of mine, the journalist, LBC broadcaster and author, James O'Brien, about his latest book, How Not to Be Wrong, The Art of Changing Your Mind. And if you know James from his LBC morning phoning, you'll know that he has a, a reputation as a fierce debater. But I think you'll also know that his approach has softened somewhat in the last year or so. Um, so I suppose our chat was quite a lot about what changing your mind actually means. James brought along the word footballification, which pretty obviously doesn't feature in the dictionary I linked to in the podcast description. Uh, but it's a word that James has used a lot to describe the entrenchment of positions that seems to be a feature of politics and all kinds of debate nowadays. Uh, my word was lies for pretty similar reasons. But our chat uh, was as much about what makes us who we are and for James, how far he's come from his upbringing, uh, adopted by a loving family with uh, what he admits was the privilege of a, a, an expensive private education. We talked a bit about therapy, about dreams, uh, James's dad, and I asked him towards the end if he thought he'd managed to change um, other people's minds. I'm really grateful for James spending an hour with us and agreeing to sign some of his books for Mr. Books. Uh, two have already been snapped up, so get your orders in. Um, so here we are. This is Lies, Footballification, with James O'Brien. 
so james thank you very much for uh for coming on and uh spending some time with us how are you me. very well indeed cold but but um ready for yeah. it it's a bit chillier and and for people listening we we're we're recording this when all the news of what thirty thousand people storming the capitol building in in washington uh, has come along it's quite remarkable i mean it's it's, it's just a bit of a theme for me at the moment with brexit and boris johnson and now this but I don't think that pre being proved right about stuff has ever felt quite so wrong, but you know we are where we are. Uh, astonishing scenes, but again, utterly predictable. Yeah. Utterly predictable, and, and all the more frightening as a result. Yeah, given that you're sometimes in the business of predictions, what's going to happen next? Oh, blimey! Um, well, I can't. <laughs> I can't see an escalation. I, I, I think Trump has either been compelled or, or finally recognize some semblance of, of normality so that 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 i think is off the table i think biden will be inaugurated but quite where this anger goes is the problem i wouldn't i wouldn't like to say it's a, it, it's a it's a massive cliche isn't it but the genie is out of the bottle now and, and getting it back in it's going to take more than four years of joe biden to do that i think but you can only hope that he starts making progress as quickly as possible it's, it's the alienation isn't it it's the way that these people are not just unhitched from kind of you know winning as it were like, like, like the old social contract where the american dream if you followed that path you got your rewards that that broke some time ago probably a couple of generations ago but now they're unhitched from reality it's, it's this speed and the and the desire to believe things that are demonstrably untrue that is so fascinating to me but so 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 hard to predict anything other than Trump's probably finished now the idea of him running again in four years I thought was quite big as a prospect depending yes. on his health but but I presume that the resignations that we're seeing as we speak and the, and the events that we saw yesterday that's got to have taken him and probably stroke hopefully all of his ridiculous brood off the ballot papers for for twenty twenty um, four, but we shall see. Stranger things. Are well, fun. yeah. I mean, I think I'm I'm almost immune to optimism. Now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, you sort of what well, you you always say. Well, it can't possibly be that bad, or it can't possibly get worse. And then along comes reality. Yeah, yeah. It almost inevitably does, and and I think the uh, the ability, the sort of shape shifting ability of of certain people, and you've had far more experience of these than I have, to yeah. uh, to sort of repackage themselves, you know, to say, well, that, not even to acknowledge their past yes. beliefs or words. I, I think, uh, quite a few people, I got blocked by Piers Morgan yesterday for, for pointing I noticed that. that. Which was a bit sad, actually. I, I kind of had, had a love-hate relationship with him over the years, and because I started my career as a show business journalist, I, I, I mean... I'm not sure I want to put this on the record for all time, but I'd always sort of looked up to him. And the Trump support seemed to me to be such an epic aberration, such a such an appalling misjudgment that I just expected him to at some point acknowledge it or admit it or, 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 or apologise for it. And it's a very gentle ribbing of him last night, pointing out that he's been incredibly rude about people like me who were warning that fascism was was, you know, being introduced into the national bloodstream in America. Not even that subtly, and and you know the accusations of being hysterical or self righteous or just plain yeah. wrong. I, I thought it'd be quite easy for him to step down from that, but no, that was a block. And then I, I, almost before 
the, the, the protesters had dispersed. Andrew Neil was trying to claim that uh, the only person responsible for what happened was, was Donald Trump himself and, and almost seeking to disassociate himself from the from the magazine that he's published for, for God yeah. knows how many years. I and mean, it is quite incredible to watch, but I guess it's um it it's it's an it's it may look like a very difficult thing to do to the likes of us, but when you think what the choices are to, to publicly state I have made an error of quite catastrophic proportions and I have supported mm. someone who was all the things that the that the critics I've maligned for five years said he was uh, it's actually easier to do the contortions and the hand washing than it is to tell the truth. It's uh, it it is quite astonishing. I, I think the other the other person that you sort of look up to, though, is not not necessarily in the same <laughs> camp as you, was Nicholas Soames. I don't know whether you saw what he tweeted today. I've seen bits and bobs. I I, I, I like Nicholas. I, I don't know yes. that I necessarily look up to him. Okay. He, is, he, is big, he is a big chap. I just I just think it's important, particularly in the current climate, to recognize that no team if you will or no political party more obviously has has a monopoly on either vice or virtue so i i think what was quite liberating about being spectacularly unimpressed by jeremy corbyn is that it freed a lot of people who are, who are now called centrists from the tribalism that typifies so much of modern politics on on both sides of the pond and and beyond so it sounds odd, but finding Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn almost equally unfit for, for, for the highest office in the land was a was a was a freeing, a liberating experience. Yeah. And that yeah. that's why I think it's important to recognise that people like Nicholas Soames, or more obviously Rory Stewart. I, I mean, I, I struggle at the moment to think of a a prominent Leave supporting Conservative who I could muster up much admiration for but it's a work in progress and as the brexit dust settles i think it's really important to recognize uh, what well to coin that famous phrase to, to recognize what we have in common rather than what sets us apart yeah it's it's uh i don't know whether it's become almost meaningless that phrase because it, it can yeah. be it can be tripped out at any point in any debate in any conflict Yes, unforgotten. It, it, it's well. That's the worry, isn't it? Is that if if enough people do something in bad faith, then they almost rob the people who do it in good faith of of sincerity and relevance. But I, mm. I do I do think I think that's a good example. I think that the, yeah. you know I would disagree with somebody like Nicholas Soames or or Anna Soubry about, for example, trade unions or or about probably about state aid for for businesses or something like that. But it's important to remember that we can agree on things. I mean, Twitter is an awful, awful uh, petri dish for this sort of thing. I, I love Twitter. I, I, I don't yeah. make any bones about that. It's a wonderful tool for me, but it's also endlessly entertaining. But uh, obviously I see some of the nastiest extremes on there and they, they do come from both the far left and, and the far right. And it, it's as if no one... You have to be a hundred percent or zero percent. So you know, if if you don't like Boris Johnson, but you also didn't like Jeremy Corbyn, then Boris Johnson is is your fault. And if you yes. you, you you just I don't quite get it. I've never really felt that way. But I guess any tend tendency or temptation to slip into that sort of uh, tribal blind loyalty is is has been removed by the last four years of British politics. And, and although I probably am very, very binary on Brexit, very much associated with Remain, that 
it, it, that's not a left-right issue for me. It's it's a much more complicated and subtle issue than that. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, that's fair enough. I, uh, just I mean, just uh, Nicholas Soames uh, yeah. tweeted um, saying, "This is your fault, you repulsive maniac." So I thought, that's, <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty clear. Did he do one of his super long hashtags? Uh, no, that was it. That, that was, was just it. The, that was the entire tweet. <laughs> yes, well, he's right, at, 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 but he's also closer politically to the kind of people that put Donald Trump in the White House than he is to people mm. like me, I guess. I, I, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm not as optimistic that everyone who ever supported Trump will never get, the, you know, back to uh, the kind of power that he has, or indeed, you know, want to mobilise that uh, that supporter base I, I, in a slightly different way. Yeah, I, I think he, he's probably unique in his facility for lying, because <laughs> the big question for me has always been whether he knew, whether he knows he lies on really obvious stuff. I, I, one of my favourite phrases at the moment is to say that's not an opinion, it's just counting. And I think it probably began with the inauguration crowds when he, he claimed that his were bigger than Barack Obama's, which was just, I mean, that was at odds with the most simple arithmetic. It really was. And so, you know, when some of his acolytes and some of his enablers amplify the lies, you know that they know they're lying. When Kellyanne Conway coined the phrase alternative facts, you know that somewhere inside she knows that's a euphemism for barefaced lies. But yeah. Trump seemed to be, to me, possessed of a of a, an ability to to believe it, the, the, the pathological nature of his lying. And whether, whether it rained or Inauguration Day, again, is a great example. Did it rain or didn't it rain? You know that great phrase about what... Yes. <laughs> people like me are supposed to do if one person says it's raining and another person says it isn't my job is to stick my head out the window and see whether or not i get wet but he blew that cliche up didn't he on inauguration yeah. claiming it wasn't raining when it clearly was i interviewed roger stone for Newsnight um back in the day oh, yeah and i actually asked him this i actually asked him whether or not trump realized he was lying as stone i mean has got a track record as long as your arm for being a a, a, a political um, I choose my words carefully. A, a <laughs> dodgy character, you know. A, a very, uh, I mean, he's been to be criminalised now, albeit pardoned by Donald Trump. But Stone always gave me the impression of someone who knew exactly what he was doing. So he'd, he'd look you right in the eye and pretend to be your friend while picking your pocket. And if he was on a stage, he'd be tipping winks to the audience that the other characters on the stage never noticed. So he was a conscious liar, to my mind. And I asked him about Trump, and he got very cross with me. And I, and and I, I I still, I still don't know. But I suspect if I had to put money on it, I think he believes the stuff that he chooses what he wants to believe, and then he genuinely believes it. And that is what makes him hopefully unique. Because even with Boris Johnson, whose relationship with the truth is is pretty strained at the best of times. You can see, you know, when Boris Johnson says we will have our cake and eat it, you know that he knows that's impossible. But if Trump said that, I could imagine him sitting down in a in a tea room and actually trying to have his cake and eat it. <laughs> it actually brings me to um, the the very shaky premise of this uh, <laughs> of this podcast, which is that we each contribute a word. Hmm. Which uh, mine was going to be lies. Oh, perfect! Yeah, yeah, excellent. Uh, pre precisely for that reason, because I can't 
quite decide whether some of the characters that that, that you spend a lot of time focusing on in your book yes. um, uh, are actual liars in in the sense that we you know as you say they know what they're saying isn't true but they say it anyway yes or, or whether they're um uh, much more fundamental lies in that they're they're kidding themselves yeah it's a question for the ages isn't it and it, it is I, I, i'm always at great pains although it's been a bit of a strain lately i'm always at great pains to to distinguish between what, what i call the con men as opposed to the con so yeah. If, if for example, you were to let's think of the most egregious example, if you're thinking about Brexit or, or um, what what the European Union can and can't do, I, I do actually think that people persuaded themselves that the European Union was a genuine enemy. You see, so mm. once you're into that warlike attitude, then. You know what they say about the first casualty of war being truth. So, so yeah. when you're not persuaded that something is an enemy, and it can be the European Union, it could be immigration stroke all immigrants, it could be Islam stroke all Muslims. It, 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 new phrases that have had targets painted on their back include lefties or, or, or leftists or even woke. You've been persuaded that you're under threat. Hmm. and And that seems to... That seems to soften the facility for, for spotting untruths. Once you're frightened, fearful, cowed, then you seem to me to be much more susceptible to snake oil, much more susceptible to, to, to propaganda. So I, I mellow on this as the years pass. I used to get incredibly angry with people for believing bullshit. But I, I, I think you've got to work out why they believe it, if they genuinely do. And it's usually because they've had an emotional response to an intellectual proposition. So yeah. how on earth can you be frightened of the European Union or think that the European Union is acting against its members' interests, in this case us, you know, or, or, or mm. prioritising other members over others? It's completely at odds with, with everything that they stand for, constitutionally and politically. But if someone walks into a room and shouts, fire, you run for the fire escape, that doesn't make you stupid. No. Now... If it turns out subsequently that there was no fire and that the fellow shouting fire, let's call him Nigel, uh, was, <laughs> was lying through his teeth, you're still not stupid for running through that fire escape. I think no. the point at which you become stupid is, is, or, or, or problematic is when it has been proved to you that there was never any fire and you continue to insist that there was. So it's a very sort of convoluted way of answering your question, I appreciate, but I... I think if if we'd had this conversation a couple of years ago, I'd have I'd have given you a different answer. I, I think there's a lot more mm. there's a lot more believing and repeating untrue things than there is deliberately deliberately lying. The problem is is when the proof has been provided, you know, and that's when people end up really lying to themselves, which is probably the the, the end game. So you know. When people started phoning my radio show to insist that they knew when they voted for Brexit that they were going to end up poorer or that they were going to lose their own freedom of movement or that they were going to um, have more red tape to fill in. When they started claiming that they knew the polar opposite of what they insisted prior to the proof arriving, that for me is is is, is my new area of interest because that mm. that is lying to yourself. And to tie it back to Trump, actually, if I may, yeah, I think white supremacism is the original lie, the original sin in these political times. Because once you have 
And, and of course, white supremacists believe the lie that their skin colour somehow bestows a, a, you know, a moral and inherent and intrinsic superiority. Uh, so we could talk for hours about why they believe that or why they want to. It's not that hard to understand if, if you've been given something completely by accident at birth. It's quite tempting to believe that it makes you better than everybody who wasn't given that completely random attribute at birth. But if you believe the lie of white supremacism, or of English exceptionalism, actually, for that matter, it seems to me once you've absorbed that lie, you've kind of opened a door of credulousness that you can't then close again. So that's why I think you see so much crossover with Trump and Brexit and now the coronavirus and vaccine hoax and scepticism stuff. Once you've opened, once you've fallen for one massive lie, a, a load of other lies rush in, I think. And, and again, the people, who, the people that phone me genuinely believe it, that you can tell by their tone, there's, a, there's an impatience with me. It's why I've had to hone my craft over the years and find, be more polite, actually, and find calmer ways of questioning people. And it's great fun to beat people up live on national radio. But I, it's even more important sometimes to understand why they climbed into the ring with such epic confidence. And, and that, that, is, <laughs> that is because they believe this stuff. And they've never really stopped to think about it enough to work out why it's dangerous to believe something so silly, so completely. Yeah. There's a there's a couple of um, things I, I wanted to just ask about um, mm. <clears throat> whether you'd whether you'd read uh, Dorothy Rowe's book about uh, called Why We Lie. No. Uh, so Dorothy Rowe was a, an Australian or born in Australia, a, a psychoanalyst who died, I think, last year. OK, I think this is one of her last books. It's really interesting read. It's a it's a, it's not a, not an especially kind of technical psychoanalysis book. But um, yeah. she also wrote she also wrote something, uh, a book I read quite a long time ago called The Real Meaning of Money. Okay, And uh, I'd recommend them because they they. they they're quite reflective in the sense that um, they they obviously challenge you to think about your attitude to money or the circumstances under which you would lie. Yeah. And they're always almost always about defending yourself, you know, your sense of self, your you know the 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 fear that you might mean nothing or you might disappear. Yes, yes, um, that makes sense. And it, it, I mean, it is. It you think of a lie as coming out of you. And reaching yeah. other people, but but it, increasingly, I think of lies as being internalized. It's you know cognitive dissonance or double thinking, yeah. whatever you want to call it. The lies we tell ourselves, even about ourselves, seem to be the most toxic lies of all. Yeah, and when those are challenged in any way, then mm-hmm. yeah, you get defensive and you get aggressive. You know, and this comes back to yes. the sort of the the aggression and violence that comes out when everything you've kind well, not I was going to say everything you've been brought up to believe, but I'm not even sure it's that that uh, straightforward no it's uh, there's all sorts it's your, of going on yeah it's yeah. your view of the world isn't it well, this, somebody's telling you that up is down yeah well or, or that you believe something and you've not really tried this is what my new book is mostly about is trying to work out why trying to identify things i genuinely believe things i would look you in the eye and and state to be true and then in the course of my career as a phone-in host people have presented me with problems that if i'm being honest would threaten my certainty and 
historically over the years, but before I had therapy, I would come out, as you described, violently punching people at questioning my, verbally, obviously, my, my sense of self. I, I believe yeah. that marriage is the gold standard of all relationships. I believe that obese people have only got themselves to blame for their condition. I believe that, uh, you know, these special educational needs are just fancy ways of what describing what we would once have called naughty. Now, I have believed all three of those things in the course of my life and in the course of my broadcasting career. I'm ashamed to admit that now because I find all three of those positions so so abhorrent and obnoxious. But when I started digging into why I had ended up believing those things, I found the process absolutely fascinating. And I, and I became quite evangelical about trying to help other people find the tools they need to, to embark on similar journeys. The problem, though, as you know, and as with so much of, of modern life, is that the people that would benefit the most from those tools are the people currently most insistent that the last thing <laughs> they need, the very last thing they need is, is, is therapy or, or indeed tools that would aid their self-examination. It's why all the brouhaha about unconscious bias training amuses me so much. Because, yes. Because you have people insisting that they don't need any unconscious bias training without quite recognising that the reason they think that is because their bias is pretty conscious. <laughs> I don't need to be taught about racism um, because I'm a racist. Thank you very much. Yes. Sort of thing. So, yeah, so uh, your second book, uh, mm. How Not to Be Wrong, I reread this Thank you. Uh, last, this last week. Yeah. Um, and it strikes me as, as a in contrast to the first book, How to Be Right, it's much more personal. Yes, it is. It's about me and my mistakes. It's, you know, it, 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 I have a fairly well-developed ego, as I'm sure your listeners have already noted, but I, I, I couldn't have written a book called How to Be Writer or, um, <laughs> or, or even, although actually the events of the last two months probably have knocked the gloss off this gag a bit, I couldn't have written a book called I Told You So. Um, mm. Although that that one might still <laughs> that one might still emerge, so I, I wanted me to be the guinea pig. So in the first book, it was very much transcripts from my radio phone in, where people would try to tell me that political correctness was a problem, and then I would gently, through a sort of quasi Socratic dialogue, I would gently prove to them that they didn't even know what they meant when they used the words political correctness, and and you know, and then all the other usual ones on homophobia and and uh, immigration and Islam and, uh, you, you know, the, the, the list is fairly easy to write. But on this one, yeah. as I say, it was, it was why did you, James, end up believing, passionately believing and violently defending positions that were at best questionable and at worst, I, I have to, you know, cards on the table, downright wrong and, and sometimes quite, well, certainly unpleasant and unkind and, and occasionally quite dangerous. That's that's what I set out to write. But it's, uh, as I say, it is very personal. It's a, it has a very immediate feel as well, doesn't it? I mean, I so. it, yeah, I mean, I read it, as I say, I reread it this last few days yeah. and um, and I was struck by, uh, I, th I think you make some reference to the pandemic, which... Yes, well, that was a big part of it, you see. It was, yeah. it was because it was, I, I, right early on, I had this idea for a book called How Not to Be Wrong, and it was going to be mostly about me, and it was probably going to be a lot more lighthearted than it ended up being. Uh, and, you know, I, I, any aspiring writers out there, this is my most valuable advice. Spend the advance, because then you have to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, yes. I, I was in that happy position at, at the beginning of lockdown, and I'd got very, very little on paper. But I had the, the, this idea, and, and, and I'm blessed when I, when I actually start, I um, 
I can I can I can knock out a fair old chunk in in every session. So I was wasn't really that worried about missing deadlines completely, but I didn't have a clear enough idea of the book that I wanted to write to get into that zone where I could uh, get lost in the writing of it and suddenly glance at the word count and see that I've done thousands of words. Right. But then I got coronavirus uh, myself, but not a particularly virulent uh, dose. And I was broadcasting from the shed at the bottom of my garden at the time. So I managed to stay on air. I'd roll out of bed, do three hours on the radio and then roll back into bed. I barely ate for, for, for eight days and I didn't have any other symptoms apart from the loss of taste and smell and, and gastric um, uh, agony. So it, it, it was clear to me that you, um, you, you know, you sit this one out, you, you, you don't fight it. And then, yeah. and then Boris Johnson got it. And David Cameron came out and talked about how he knew Boris Johnson would beat it because he'd seen him play tennis. And I, I thought that that was such a ridiculously dangerous thing to say. But I realised simultaneously that that was very much what I used to be like before, before I started therapy. So what I'd learned in therapy was that I had spent most of my life, really, probably beginning from being regularly beaten as a, as a schoolboy by my headmaster at prep school, I had put on a suit of armour and, and I'd, I'd existed in a state of hypervigilance, you know, like a permanent mm. adrenalised fight or flight, which turns everything into, in my case, a, a kind of public school debating chamber crossed with the rugby pitch. And, yeah. and and therapy freed me from that straitjacket in the most magnificent and, and, and pleasurable of ways. But Johnson and Cameron had a similar schooling to me. I, I, I'm younger than them, but I was just at the back end of that post-Victorian public school experience where, you know, privation was, was privilege, where stiff upper lips were, were signs of strength rather than emotional illiteracy. And the training that you needed to run an empire involving probably a quashing, a quelling of empathy and a, and a massive prioritization of pugilistic tendencies. I, I used to be that person. You could hear it on my radio show every day. And, and that was the key I needed to, to unlock the book's sort of central message was, was realizing that what I had learned in therapy applies to a huge number of people, but has a particular pertinence to, to the root, to the public school educated ruling class. And and the more I wrote, the more I realized that, that it it's not that simple. I, I think that actually being in a gang as a young person on a completely different side of the tracks from the one I grew up on has a similar experience. It's it's a traumatizing experience. And and I would listen to the lyrics of someone like like Dave or I would talk mm. interview George the poet and and what they described and this was really tricky Philip because you know on paper this is asking for trouble suggesting <laughs> suggesting that going to the most expensive schools in the country can be a, a similarly emotionally traumatic experience to being involved in criminality and you know gang culture from a very young age but we were frightened you know, people like Johnson and Cameron and me spent most of our formative years in a, in a state of relative fear, whether it was fear of teachers and authority, and in my case, actual corporal punishment, or whether it was fear of the, you know, the, the, the class wit or the class bully or whoever it was. We had, well, what I thought was my skin, what was a suit of armour. And, and, and that 
is what prompted me to start looking at lots. I mean, if I could be so wrong about who I was, what I was as a, as a man, as a human, as a father, as a husband, then clearly I, it, it was more than likely that a lot of my, quote, opinions, end quotes, could be categorically and catastrophically wrong as well. So that's when the book kind of the planets aligned and the book from that point on kind of wrote itself. I, I, I admire you putting the... Um... Uh, the therapy kind of front and centre of that, uh, you know, as I say, it's a personal book, yeah. isn't it? And I, I, I've been through therapy as well. Well, then you, you know, know you, you presumably, yeah. you, you, I mean, I think you have to get lucky, don't you, with your therapist? I got lucky first time. Yeah. And I went into it, as you know, because I write about this with, I mean, yeah. inexpressible levels of scepticism. I did it because um, we had a, a medical uh, catastrophe at home. One of the people I love most, in the world was very, very poorly. And I was making things worse by adopting this, you know, jolly hockey stick, stiff upper lip, come on, I'll, <laughs> I'll help you get better because I've seen you play tennis type approach. And so it, I, I, no one was more surprised than me when I felt it working pretty much on the, on, on the very first session. And, and that's why it's, people have said it was, it was brave to put it in the book, but it, it just felt completely natural to me. It's, I've always overshared. I've, I've always, <laughs> I've never felt, embarrassed this is my mum's legacy my mum's a magnificent woman and my sister and I were both adopted that's something that other people might have felt shame about but I never did I just felt blessed and lucky and then my wife and I had fertility treatment because my sperm count was catastrophically low and again I, I'm not remotely ashamed of that it's a it's a medical condition it's you know it's it's, it's like having a I don't know, a, a, a double jointed or something like that. It's completely random, and and mm. and, and I've, so I've always been comfortable talking about things that other people might feel shame about. And I, I think therapy is slots into the same category. I, I, I'm proud of, of the work I've done in therapy. I'm proud of the progress I've made, and I'm proud of the person that I'm constantly trying to trying to become. So it was evangelism that made me write about it. I really, yeah. really think it could help people to. To address it, and, and but again, we're back to that. The one nut I can't crack is the fact that the people who would benefit most from it are the people who would be most, people like me, who would be most adamant that it's the last thing they need, you see. And because I was like that, I think I can say that without sounding holier than thou. Yeah, I think uh, it's interesting that, you know, you, you've made reference to um, Ampleforth. Mm. And, uh, and goodness knows, they've gone through problems. Last time I read anything about mm -hmm. that, they, they were forbidden from recruiting new students i think yes. but anyway that's still the case well, yeah well i think there are i think that requirement gets lifted as the appeal against the requirement moves right. forward so you know i guess a bit like being released on bail pending appeal right. or something like that but but yeah it's still a very real possibility and that would mm. be the end of the school but i'm reading a, a i think a a journalist's account of Ampleforth, I think somebody who might have been a contemporary of yours, I don't mm. know, but um, I, the thing that struck me was that uh, Boris Johnson would have fitted right in there um, with uh, yes. with a, a much more lax uh, uniform requirement than, uh, than Eaton. Yeah, well, I um, fitted right in. I mean, that that's the point, but it's what you make yeah. yourself in, in order to fit in. It, it, yeah, so that, I guess that's what, that's why I'm, where I'm leading is, yeah. I think you asked the same question about um, the guy who phoned you about being in a gang, you know, yeah. and he chose a particular path. That's right. And again, you know, in, you have chosen and you are still choosing a different path 
for, than uh, people, as you say, like David Cameron or Boris Johnson, who had very similar educational yeah. experiences. Yes, but I had no choice. You know, I, ha- I would have tried, I think I say in the book, the example I use is coffee enemas. I met a woman at a dinner party once with a fit and they're swearing blind about coffee enemas, and which really is what it sounds like. You know, they, they blow coffee yeah. out your ass. And I, 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 I if, if, if there was a 1% chance of that equipping me with the tools that I needed to be a, you know, to, to, to be of more use at home, or, or at least to stop being a negative influence on the situation, I would have tried that. I would have tried absolutely anything. And, and I hope that gives me a generosity towards people, particularly men, but, but, but people from similar, I don't want to say backgrounds, because that has a socioeconomic context to it, but from similar origins. When, when your personality, I mean, they call them formative years for a reason, don't mm. they? Your, your personality is formed during those years. And I don't think many of us realise that it doesn't have to be permanent. You know, it, it, I tell you that I wish I'd thought of this when I was writing the book because <laughs> it's a lovely phrase that has popped up when I've been doing interviews. It's a bit like living in a house for your entire life and you love that house or you think you love that house and you are familiar with every room and every corner of every room. And then at the age of, in my case, 44 or 45, I discovered it had had a garden all along. Mm. And and that's what therapy gave me, the keys to the garden. And, and that, of course, changes every aspect of not just the house, but the life you live. Because there's a bloody great garden uh, uh, through that door that you'd never noticed before, you know, or that you thought was permanently locked. Oh, crikey. It just reminded me of recurring <laughs> dreams I've had for years and years. <laughs> it's it's pretty much that uh, that dream, actually. Is it really? I, yeah, well, oh. not just not just a garden, but, you know, whole rooms that you yeah. haven't discovered. Yeah. And I've never interpreted it that way. And I've never been one for interpreting dreams particularly. But Well, a lot maybe of that's... therapy is. Uh, my wife yeah. training as a psychotherapist at the moment, and, and then ah. uh, her teacher is very big on on dreams it's i mean it's it's unlikely that they're completely random isn't it they probably do reflect something from your conscious reality and in, in your unconscious but that i have similar dreams as well i can't remember whether i had them before but that is the best way to describe what it did for me so yeah. you know even if you're looking at someone you don't like or someone that you're opposed to politically if if you suspect that they're living in a house and they still don't know it's got a garden if you could help them find that garden you'd actually end up making them people that you would be less opposed to because they'd be happier and more at one with themselves and they wouldn't think that they can to to bring it back to modern politics they wouldn't think that they would make themselves feel better as so many of these people do these days by making other people feel bad I mean almost all of the politics of people like Priti Patel seems to be to me um, uh, the the idea that we'll make people feel better we'll make those feel people feel better by making those people feel worse and I just don't yeah. think that works uh, coming back to uh, to your early life then mm. I mean your uh, going to Ampleforth was was uh, I, in my terms anyway I guess it was a a, a pretty uh, concerted effort to buy you this cultural capital yeah. wasn't it yeah. uh, from your dad. Yes, completely. Um, so dad left school at 15 yeah. uh, in Leeds. His, his mum was a publican, grew up above, for people who were familiar with Leeds in that era, he grew up above a pub called the Market Tavern, which was known as the Madhouse. And it was by some distance the roughest pub in the whole of Leeds. <laughs> so, you know, I, I wear my uh, uh, metropolitan elite credentials very lightly. 
Um, but dad was determined that I would have the golden ticket that he saw other people flash on their way past him professionally. He was a brilliant journalist, my dad, absolutely brilliant journalist, of the kind that doesn't really exist anymore. And he came up via the regionals and ended up on the Daily Telegraph, which for younger listeners used to be a deeply reputable and highly respected <laughs> newspaper. And he was also a Catholic, a devout Catholic, and Ampleforth is a, is a, or was a monastic, yeah. a monastic school. So it was, it was cultural capital, but also, and it took me a while to work this out, and I only worked out after we'd lost him, he also felt that it bestowed, what would the right word be, almost like a hallmark of spiritual strength, I think. He, he right. felt, and, and this breaks my heart, looking back, not least because I never had this chat with him, but I've spoken to mum about it a bit. And I think the religious element of it was what made dad think they could do a better job of bringing me up than, than mum and dad would have done. Because that's wow. what boarding school involves, like whether you like it mm. or not, whether they are described as in loco parentis for a reason. And I find that absurd, the, the idea that anyone could have done a better job of raising me than my mum and dad would have done. But I think the combination of the golden ticket stroke cultural capital, the knowledge uh, that, you know, if I was to arrive at the Daily Telegraph with my education, I, I would have ended up on, on, you know, on, on the editor's floor, on the editorial office. And, and although people from dad's background did make that journey, it was infinitely harder for, 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 yeah. for, for, for those people. So there was that. But then there was also the, 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 the religious element of it, which is why what has emerged and what I unearthed while I was there about the men who are monks was so... Uh, uh, unfair. So you know the, the the idea that that my ridiculous housemaster, who wasn't fit to lace my father's boots, because of my father's experiences, he had somehow unconsciously arrived in a place where he thought that man would do a good job of looking after me between the age of thirteen and eighteen. And in fact, you know, if I if I'd never strayed a a foot away from my father, I, I'd have been much better off, and, and I wouldn't have suffered any of the things that we've been talking about with regard to hypervigilance and and, mm. and you know fight or flight approaches to life. So, yeah, it's a funny one that because also you know we've got some great mates. We had a fantastic time at school, and yeah, we had the thing, experiences. It? So it's not binary, but yeah, it's um. It's a, yeah, it's a big part of me, actually. Isn't it? Yeah, you can't yeah, and it is, it is difficult. I mean, I can really? tell it's, it's, it is difficult to deal with. And particularly, as you say, because it's not it's not something that you can go back and explore with your dad or with... No, or, um, no I, I think mum probably... I mean, mum would agree that that's why I went and it's why she was less enthusiastic about boarding in general, let alone boarding 250 miles away from home. But it was it was clearly born of the belief that it would better me. I would be better equipped to make my way in the world. And that's just true for all the things I've just said about it having a, a deleterious effect on me and it not and I'd have been happier and better adjusted and and more emotionally literate if I'd stayed at home under mum and dad's influence. The bottom line is I got my golden ticket and at the age of 25 or 26, I was I was a, a section editor on a Fleet Street newspaper, which dad 
didn't manage in in his entire career. So it worked. It, that's yeah. that's the really tricky thing. It, it bloody works. I've spoke to Dom Jolly a lot about this on my own podcast because he yeah. had a very similar experience. And and the point is that this survival personality, which is is what I think therapists call it, which is what I'm referring to when I talk about not realizing that that my what I thought was my skin was actually armor. My survival yeah. personality worked, you know, it, it, I survived and I thrived and I wouldn't be talking to you now, certainly with the broadcasting credentials that I've got, um, if I hadn't been given that golden ticket. Like my, my idiot housemaster said when I was 14 that I would end up either famous or in jail. <laughs> but by the time I, I think by the time I was 21, which was obviously idiotic, but I don't think that I would have, I don't think I'd have ended up in jail or in trouble, but I don't think I would have got anywhere close to where I wanted to be or where I have got to without that golden ticket. And and that's why, again, it's not binary. You can't say it's 100% good or 100% bad because the dividend that dad sought for me has been delivered and then some. And, and now, happily, I can also separate the good stuff from what I realise is is less good or unhealthy stuff yeah i suppose uh, as i say it comes back to this you know what in a very crude way Mm. what what makes you broadly left wing Mm. after that upbringing when you could have been broadly right wing after that upbringing yes yeah i I mean i i I think it's about fairness for me so that there might be areas and and I'm, i'm delighted to find myself still capable of changing my mind there might be areas in which i i I possibly am closer to being right wing than left wing but it's more about fairness it's more about equality of opportunity and and because the opportunities i was offered because mum and dad could afford just i mean they couldn't really but they they pulled it off somehow they could afford Mm. to send me to this school um the opportunities i had are denied to the massive majority of the population that is just a matter of fact and and again perhaps because i'm adopted i have always been conscious of the 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 me i would have been without these opportunities and and that informs my politics and what i like about this analysis is that i can frame it as being selfish because the left often like to congratulate themselves on being unselfish and they malign the right by describing them as selfish but here is a selfish justification of like it's a bit don rule's veil of ignorance isn't it that there is the unadopted me the non-public school educated me how would i have made my way in this world i truly believe i wouldn't have made the way that i have made so how would you make a society fairer and and that leads me to i sort of to be really bloody cliched that leads me to a sort of scandinavian social democracy type model where you still have gaps in society and and i think it's insane to think that you could remove them and you have a hierarchy and you have people who are much better off and much better paid than others, but the gaps are much smaller. And the Mm. gulf between the top and the bottom in a country like Sweden is a fraction of what it is in a country like the UK. And and that, that is, that's probably the closest I've got to an ideology. And, and you'd be surprised. Remember, I, I mean, the religion comes into it a bit as well. I mean, despite the best efforts of people like Jacob Rees Mogg to completely turn observations like this upside down you are supposed as a christian to to do unto others as you would have done unto yourself you are supposed to look after those who are less fortunate than yourselves you are supposed to care 
about people. So again, that that I don't like to think of that in left right terms, but no. that's a big part of, of of what kind of drives me or, or what what keeps me warm at night. You know. Yeah. I mean, I'm older than you, but mm. I, and and I didn't go to to a, to a private or public school um so uh, but i th- you know i went to grammar school and yeah. my parents were parents were teachers and mm. um and i felt that i, I and, and i kind of escaped my background in a way because yes. i moved from lancashire down to the southeast and i you know and i felt yeah i felt much the same mm. it was about well if i've had these lucky breaks yeah isn't it a pity that more people don't get these lucky breaks? Or, or at least that the people who've had them don't acknowledge that they're bloody lucky. That seems to yeah. me to be the starting point. And that's where the particularly unpleasant brand of modern conservatism uh, concerns me. Because mm. there's that great phrase about being the American said, but he's born on third base and he thinks he scored a home run. And you look at people like, Donald Trump's children, and you know that somewhere inside they're convinced that they deserve these baubles and these glittering prizes. That, mm. and, and and you see it here. I'm afraid in the in the, particularly the more recent intake in the in the Tory party, they they sort of think they've earned it. Rhys Mogg thinks he's somehow yeah. worthy of these privileges, where it's just dumb luck, and and it doesn't seem to me to be too damaging to my equilibrium or my self-esteem to say, yeah, that, well, that was bloody lucky. God knows where I've ended up if I hadn't had that. But that is an interesting kind of conundrum, isn't it? That, that you can see that yeah. in your position, that you that it's luck. Yes. And other people... They just can't. Just don't. Or, won't. Yeah, they, they won't. or refuse to. Well, yeah, I think, there's, I think it, maybe it's very hard to do because, well, look, I, I mean, I grew up in Kidderminster and as I say, my, my, my dad was a daily telegraph journalist so if i'd grown up in a castle like you know i went to school with lads who had moats that was used to make me <laughs> laugh i always thought that was one of the great distinguishing <laughs> there's rich there's very rich and then there's him over there whose house has got a bloody moat around it um but if i i, I wonder whether and this doesn't this isn't a catch-all analysis because some of the most entitled people you can meet are, are, are clearly not from this kind of background but if you are intellectually conscious of just how unfair the advantages you enjoy are then i wonder how much effort emotionally you put into persuading yourselves that it's not unfair at all and that there is a sort of natural justice to mm. to hereditary privilege and, and 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 unless you can convince yourself there's a natural justice to hereditary privilege how do you sleep at night you know i look at someone like i suppose prince william how on earth does he square his life with mm. any form of, of, of commitment to fairness or, or equality? I presume by never, ever thinking about it. Or if he and this is why they invent the divine right of kings, isn't it? Because yeah. ultimately the way you judge, well, no, I know it may look unfair to you, old boy, but this is what God wanted. So tally-ho and doff the old crap <laughs> and bend the old knee. And, and you know, on myriad different scales, I think that goes on all the time. But it is one of the things that puzzles and frustrates me the most. Why, why do you find it so hard just to admit that you're lucky? It's a, yeah. it's a weird It brings one. us back to that, uh, that lies, doesn't it? Yes, uh, it does. Whether you're lying to yourself. Yes, or... it does. It does. Lying to yourself or, or self-justification, you know, it is a, it's a, it's a very strange business. Did you ever see the, uh, the 
uh, Adam Curtis documentary, The Century of the Self. No, I didn't, and it's, we're not the uh, first person to recommend it to. Oh, you. right, okay. Well, it's 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 freely available it's on iPlayer. Yes. Like, it's four hours of your life, though. Right, yeah. But it is uh, <laughs> it's well worth and watching. You know, there was a reason why I hadn't got around to watching. <laughs> that is exactly what it was. Yeah. But it's well worth watching. It's, it's it's like twenty years old now, I think, something like that. But it, it's well worth watching, and it, and he does put some of this stuff into a historical context. It's kind of and I I for whatever reason I think a lot of a lot of this sort of selfish times that I think you mentioned in the book is because of I guess my hmm. age comes goes back to the Thatcher Conservative government yeah. and that kind of that idea of popularism. Hmm. And uh, the idea that everyone uh, had uh, their destiny in their own hands, if only they had this freedom to. Yeah, uh, I mean, it is, it's a weird ideology, isn't it? When you it is a very strange it. thing. It's, and I think it, it sort of it had an effect of, 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 I think, dumbing down in the sense it made everything, you know, marketable, everything uh, to, to be consumed and yeah. Uh, yeah that's a very astute observation and it's worse now than it was then i think yeah with the, yeah. the com- i mean this is the tufton street world view in a nutshell isn't it really that the, mm. it's um nothing is nothing is a is a is a, a means to an end you know nothing has intrinsic value and yeah. it's why the education policies that they push are so reductivist, you know, that the, the, well, don't need to study the humanities, don't need to study the arts, you just need to study vocational subjects. Mm. Christ on a bike. I, it's one of my pet theories, just to get it out there. I think it's in, in the right context of what we just discussed. But one of the reasons why fascists hate the arts is is because of empathy, isn't it? Because if I, if I yeah. ever imagine what it would be like to be on the end of that jackboot, the wrong end of that jackboot, then I am probably going to start cultivating an opposition to jackboots. And and we learn empathy, I think, from imagination and we learn imagination from art. So I, I, I do think that, I, I, you know, if you get a few pints inside me, I can <laughs> wax very lyrical about how all this is linked and, and trying to excuse yeah. very rich people from having their taxes subsidise the education of poor people. Rich people hate that for two reasons. One, they want to keep all their money, but two, an educated population probably at some point is going to object to the amount of money that that fellow has got in the first place and insist that he just shares a bit more not that he gets strung up from the uh, nearest lamppost or or, you know this is why they have to try to conflate black lives matter with marxism that's all bollocks but Mm. but just to share more and and you know and i know that some people really really hate sharing however much however much they've got some people hate sharing some people haven't got a pot to P and hate sharing and and more obviously and more um, commonly people who've already got way 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 more than they'll ever need seem to hate sharing more than anyone else. It's a great adage, isn't there? It might be Greek. It says if, if if you're ever poor, uh, if you're ever hungry, ask a poor person for food. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but I think that that uh, reluctance to share, you know, the, uh, is is down to that sort of Thatcherist. Yeah. Uh, the modern incarnation idea. of it is, and more recent yeah. versions of it are. Yes, I mean that, um, yeah, that ideology that your money is your money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, 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 this idea that that somehow it doesn't circulate. That's right. You know, the idea that taxes are lost to you. Yes, it is. This is a bizarre idea. It's absolutely bizarre, but but and also, we don't have the information we need to have a proper attitude to ideas like that because, I mean, the percentage of people who are net 
contributors tax-wise to, to British society is always considerably smaller than people realise. The massive majority of people, I think, over the course of a lifetime will take out more than they put in, particularly if they're to get a really, you know, if they need a lot of NHS treatment or if mm. they put kids through state school, then, you know, they're, they're in financial terms, they're almost certainly taking out more than they than they put in. But you once you create the idea that you're being robbed by the tax man, then people who actually benefit from our taxation system end up going to war on behalf of the of the. Of, People who, yeah. you know, who do resent having to share, resent the ragged trousered philanthropists. And just exactly that, the ragged trousered philanthropists, or the or the <laughs> working class Tories, as, as one of my yeah. most um, assiduous contributors calls them. Uh, I didn't ask you for your word. Well, we covered it. My word, which I don't think I invented, but I have yet to find evidence of it being used before I started using it widely, is footballification, which which describes mm. the process by which everybody is either 100% with you or 100% against you. And, and uh, uh, your side has a monopoly on virtue and the other side has a monopoly on vice. And you, 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 I, I see it, I mean, over the centuries, it's come and gone, but I really feel at the moment that we're in an era where uh, politics has been footballified to a to a terrifying degree mm. that people cannot admit any this is what i was referring to when you mentioned nicholas soames Pe- people seem to struggle to admit that the other lot uh, have any redeeming features whatsoever and 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 it, it frees you from the inconvenience of having to think about things you you, you just you know here is somebody doing something i'm not going to judge that action by its value either either it's moral or it's material value i'm just going to check the shirt color and then mm. i'm going to decide whether i whether i cheer them to the rafters or or boo them into oblivion and i i, I particularly pertinent to radio phone-in yeah. <laughs> but radio phone-ins have, have taken over the world you look at donald trump's mode of politics it's basically kind of rush limbo's radio programs where, where the furious opinion is backed up by little or no evidence. And the phrase I've, I've used more recently is that people have their scarves, you know, it's a red scarf or a blue scarf, and it's knotted so tightly around their neck that it's cut off the flow of blood to their brain, and, or they just spend their lives biting chunks out of each other. And I'm guilty of it, I'm sure, on, on occasion, but it, it can't be good for the body politic, can it, to have, have a, a, a kind of a foundation-free, furious allegiance to a flag without really knowing why but it's uh it, it, does it have the same foundation as that um you know creating the bogeyman you know making you afraid of something or is it no, i mean it I, cuts I, both ways doesn't it so yeah. it, it, it is i mean again this is why i use the word liberating to describe being politically homeless for the last four years because you, you watched those the people that thought Jeremy Corbyn was the Messiah and the people who think Boris Johnson is the Messiah have so much more in common with each other than they mm. do with with those of us who, who find them both unimpressive. I, I don't know if it is the same as the, the fake enemy. No, I wonder. Yeah, I do. I mean, it, well. seems to me, it seems to me that, the, in essence, the sort of the, if you look at parliamentary politics, yeah. or at least what we see of it, that was always 
footballification, wasn't it? I mean, it's it, the, well, the room know, itself it, is it, set up in that way, isn't it? it? It's called, you had, until 79, we're back to Thatcher, I think you had consensus politics rather than conviction politics. So, so you know, something yeah. like Churchill could sit for, you know, all three major parties, pretty much. Yeah, you, could, yeah. you could you could not imagine that happen. Maybe Chukaramuna, but you couldn't really imagine that happening these days. It's more. It's I tell you what it is. You're right, but it's the other side of the coin. So on one side of the coin, you've got the manipulate this population by telling them there's a barbarians at the gate and and I will protect you from them. And mm. once you have got that debt of gratitude for being protected, then you will believe whatever this snake oil salesman tells you or sells you. That's your, your sort of Trump Farage model. But the other side of the coin, and this is what you're alluding to, would be the security you get from feeling that you belong, you know, from yeah. feeling that you're in. A, so that's why I have no idea what people mean when they talk about leftists and Marxists in the context of Black Lives Matter. They certainly don't mean anything that's in that's in Das Kapital or in the Communist Party manifesto or anything yeah. like that. But they but but they don't ever stop to think what it describes. They derive security from perceived solidarity. So it, it, it's not so much the, the the confected enemy. It's more the confected allegiances that make. Yeah. People, and that's what social media has done. It's created huge cohorts of people who feel that they're at home. They're in their gang. They're in their tribe. But it's it's an allegiance built on bollocks, and that is that is why my first book was so successful at tugging the threads of these loyalties and tugging the threads of these allegiances and demonstrating that they were built on nothing, nothing at all. Uh, you know, I mean, absolutely nothing, built on vacuums, and uh, and 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 yet that doesn't until someone really holds up the mirror to you, that doesn't stop you from deriving comfort, deriving security from that for false sense of solidarity and that is is more than political isn't it i yeah. mean it's the it's yeah, the yeah, othering yeah. of uh i think the last issue in in the book is uh is about attitudes towards trans people yeah. and their rights and that's phenomenally difficult i mean i find that difficult to yes well, I, and yet even saying it's difficult that's the middle isn't it because yeah. for, for the people who are you know at the two I don't want to say extremes, but but I can't think of a better word. It's the easiest decision in the world. You, you, mm. They really are. We have all virtue here, and the other side has all vice. And they're equally convinced of it, to the point where if you're sitting in the middle, like the, you know, the umpire at Wimbledon, and you say, oh, crikey, yeah, I can see why you might think that. Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> you have to hang swivel on, your head. see why you might think that as well. You will, and I know this from bitter personal experience you will come under un, unforgiving attack from both of them they'll, they'll yeah. all take time off from attacking each other to turn on you in the middle saying that I, I get that oh hang on i also get that and they really hate that more sometimes it seems than they hate each other because well i don't know why but but it's you're right it's the best example probably and and then trans really upsets me the trans debate because it is being hijacked by yeah. more traditional bigots, you know, people pretending that because uh, uh, someone perceived as having been transphobic has been uh, ca- banned from a from a university appearance, then that they've very successfully co-opted that that reality, that genuine reality, into claiming that other people are being silenced and cancelled as well 
Mm. So, you know, you're racist and you're homophobes and, and you're, you're Islamophobes and you're anti-Semites all get some cover from from the trans debate. You know, the, 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 I, I, I mean, I, I know what people mean when they talk about cancel culture, but in my experience, it only really has any validity in the context of the transgender debate and, and mm. the, the, the the desperation that that racists have to claim that they are being treated similarly is very sinister to me. Yeah, it's an odd. Uh, well, yeah, uh, yeah. But you 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 spend a lot of t- a lot of your time trying to deal with these things. Do you feel you've made progress? <laughs> I, I know I've made progress, but I also know that I haven't made as much as I could have done or would have liked to do. Obviously, by far the most gratifying communications I get, it, it, sometimes on air, this will happen, but more often off air, are from people who thank me for changing their views or changing their yeah. worlds, changing their family. You know, family, but I go back years now. First, possibly the first one ever, with a, a a fellow who got in touch to thank me for talking about homophobia and and mm. homophobes on the radio because his nephew had come out as gay. His brother, the lad's dad, really couldn't cope with it, and and this fellow got in touch with me to say I, I used what I learned from listening to your show to talk my brother round. And he's now much more at peace with his son's sexuality than he ever would have been if I had never listened to your show. And, you know, I don't want to sound self-congratulatory, but that I don't think I don't think you can do much more in life than bring people together like that. It's a, it, it, I don't think I, I don't think I've ever been prouder of anything. And I get it. I, I've had a lot of ex-EDL people get in touch, mm. um, even just. You know, something as simple as an old boy putting his laptop away at his wife's behest, just saying just that you, you, you're angry all the time. <laughs> just put the laptop under the sofa for a month. And he said, you know, after a week, James, everything was, was tickety-boo. Everything was back to normal. So I definitely make a difference. And I, I, I'm yeah. not, I don't feel self-conscious or pompous saying that, but you'll, you'll never really know how much. The other difference you make is, of course, comforting people who were already in a similar place to you. And the weirdest thing about the British media, uh, and there's no false modesty here on my part, the weirdest thing is that there are so few people doing what I do, you know, just being generally, yeah. generally kind of touchy-feely, can't we all be nice to each other, let's all get along, and, and then occasionally unsheathing the, the, the sharper blades to deal with particularly toxic positions. But it, it, it's really terrible indictment really of the british media that in terms of those who are allowed to have opinions if you had to list prominent british journalists whose opinions could be broadly described as as liberal and generous you struggle to use up all five fingers on one hand <laughs> whereas if you were asked to describe people who, who could be broadly described as uh, illiberal or or, or or um unpleasant or callous well we'd be here all day yeah Plenty of those. So is there a bigger audience for you? I mean, is there a place for you back on the BBC at some stage or is that um, I doubt it. I doubt it. I mean, it's a shame. Really, I think in a a logical universe, there probably would be. But I left the BBC specifically to talk about Brexit, Donald Trump and and, and to a lesser extent, Boris Johnson. So I, I, I appreciate people aren't quite, not everybody's ready yet to acknowledge that Brexit was not a two-way. Brexit was an appalling debate, and 
I write, I'll say it out loud. People aren't ready yet to admit that I was right about that. Necessarily. <laughs> a lot of people are. I get apologies in my email inbox almost every day. Um, yeah. But clearly what's happened in the last 24 hours means that those of us who used the, the F word to describe Donald Trump have been proved categorically and, and, and completely yeah. correct. So you'd think that having had to leave the BBC in order to avoid the false equivalent and the both sidesism on those two issues, You'd think that when both of those issues have been proven to have been the last places on earth where we should have been doing false equivalence on both sides, and then 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 um, the door would reopen. But again, it will sound boastful. My numbers now—I've got more listeners in London than Radio Four, so yeah. and and way more listeners than Newsnight had viewers. And that's rel- these are relatively recent developments. So I, I'm not sure there's a bigger audience out there. No, maybe not a bigger audience. No, I think. But I, I genuinely don't understand why there isn't a space um, on BBC mm. for just uh, exploring issues, as you say, in a, in, a, in a slightly different way. I mean, if, if um, I don't know what channel he's on now, but if Frankie Boyle can yeah. can say what he says, uh, most of which is very funny, yes. but, uh, but but quite yeah, he crosses line. on the nose. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's journalism. Yeah. It's the difference between it. So you know, there is clearly a bias at the heart of the British establishment. If Andrew Neil can publish the Spectator and somehow observe the BBC's impartiality rules, whereas uh, mm. I have to stop presenting Newsnight because I've tweeted rude things about Donald Trump, or I want to be free to continue tweeting uh, rude things about Donald Trump. If listen, it was never a choice. So uh, I love doing my LBC show. That was my day yeah. job. My BBC work was a sideline that I loved doing. I loved presenting Newsnight. It was a right, right old privilege. But it was never paying my mortgage. So the decision when it came, I can, I can frame it as being very noble and principled. <laughs> but it was also pretty straightforward in, in that, you know, this job provides my family's lifestyle. This job is the cherry on the icing on the cake. So you're not going to give up the cherry, are you, in, in order to keep the cake and the cake and the icing. So if I was going to knock LBC on the head and, and, and wind my neck in on Twitter, maybe I could go and, and work at the BBC as a, as a presenter again and and, um, and observe the scrupulous impartiality. But you would be suffering that cognitive dissonance and you'd be fuming about injustice. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. Exactly that. And, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd be thinking, why have you allowed... You know, I won't tell you who it was, but two of the biggest beasts at the BBC. There were little moments, Philip, when I was presenting Newsnight where I would pinch myself. I would yeah. I would think, because, you know, with Dad being a journalist, we had the news programmes on all the bloody time. He used to try to bring up with mad. Um, I just wanted to watch Trumpton. But the, uh, <laughs> but And you were 23. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> a couple of the really big boys, you know, they're real legends. And, and this was just as the post-referendum reality was beginning to dawn. And they mm. both said to me, unprompted, actually, they both said to me, you should keep your voice. And that would have meant not working for the BBC. And I thought that was really interesting. And it kind of gave me the confidence to think, well, maybe I, maybe I don't follow a career path that has already been trodden by other people. Mm. Maybe I try and map my own. And, and that is what I continue to try to do. Well, last question then. Yeah. What, what are you going to write another book? Wow. Is there another book? I don't know. But not yet. I mean, I, I, I told you so. Is is in the very <laughs> very early stages. But I don't know if I'd want to read that, let alone write it. And if I wouldn't want to read me 
boasting about having got everything right over the last few years, and I can't imagine anybody else would. I, and and, and men talked about my dad a lot. I always do um, in conversations like this. We, mm. We're talking about what what made me, and 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 I always when I was in a career lull, I'd always tell my dad I was writing a novel, <laughs> and my dad would always come back with the Peter Cook line. Neither am I, son. Neither am I. <laughs> so I, I, I really hope I've got a novel or two in me, but they're, they're, they're currently notable chiefly by their elusiveness. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, whatever you do, I hope it's, uh, I hope it's good for you and it's Thank a good you, success. Philip. And I shall, I shall look forward to reading it myself. <laughs> I shall look forward to reading even, it. Even if no one else does. Writing it, that's the problem. Reading it is the <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank James. you, mate. That really was lovely. That. Thank you. So that was my chat with James O'Brien. As the news reverberated from Washington, I was uh, I was really impressed by James's willingness to reconsider his position. And as we said in the interview, he's clearly gained such a lot from therapy and reflection i recommend it for everyone um, and especially if you don't think you need it uh, james's two books how to be right and how not to be wrong uh, i think are really entertaining and thought-provoking and are probably therapeutic on their own and, and of course you can order them for mr books online at www.mrbooks.co.uk we've got more great guests lined up so uh, if you don't want to miss that um, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, like right here at acast.com. Ideas in Writing is supported by Mr. Books Bookshop in Tunbridge, the home of independent, inspiring and imaginative books, gifts and conversation, including, I have to say, an exclusive range of book-related and Mr. Books-inspired T-shirts. That, that's specifically T-shirts. So thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support us. Just need to click on the link and become an ACAST supporter. It's a one-off donation. You can give as much or as little as you like, and uh, there's no commitment. But it certainly helps us to keep producing these podcasts. So thank you very much.